Hello, everyone. Here come the Pacific waves from RNZ Pacific. Meet Coroy Hawkins. Coming up. Quite a, a big one. Really shook the house, and even my my vehicle was shook, and I was worried that it might roll down the hill. Solomon Islands has been rocked by a series of massive earthquakes, the largest as seven on the Richter scale. Also, the referendum, although overwhelmingly in favour of independence, did not bind Papua New Guinea. Bougainville still intent on gaining independence from Papua New Guinea this decade. And later on... The most significant one is the magnitude of the volcano. The Tonga government says it will use recently released scientific data on their devastating January volcanic eruption and tsunami for future resilience planning. The Solomon Islands has been rocked by a series of earthquakes this afternoon, the most severe sitting at 7 on the Richter scale. The underwater quakes occurred off the west coast of Guadalcanal on Tuesday and initially sparked threats of tsunamis, but these were later lifted by the Solomon Islands Meteorological Service and the Pacific Tsunami Warning Centre. There have not been any reports of serious damage, though there are unconfirmed reports of cracks in the Parliament building in the capital, Honiara, and photos online show visible damages to the walls of some local shopping malls. The national broadcaster, the SIBC, was forced off air for 30 minutes by power cuts due to the earthquake. In government minister Peter Chanel says the National Referral Hospital, which is on the water's edge in Honiara, was emptied out with patients on the road, some in wheelchairs seeking taxis to drive them to higher ground. He spoke with senior RNZ Pacific journalist Don Wiseman. Well, it's, it's quite a, a, a big one. really shook the house and even my, my vehicle was shook and I was worried that it might roll down the hill. And we were all... Everybody was scrambling to get out of the house uh, and walk to to a safe place. We have a high house that the the, the post are not. We, we were worried about the post. The post might break and um, the house might fall. So we we all scrambled out to a safer ground. And what was the end result? Did you actually have posts falling down? No, uh, the house stood its ground. But uh, our hospital is like uh, everybody's evacuated. Even the nurses and doctors have. Uh, Oh, left, and uh, there's some people in the emergency. So the the main hospital has had to be evacuated. Why is that? We we had to evacuate a lot of uh, because my wife was in in the hospital, and uh, we I had to go down and pick her up. And uh, they have evacuated as a precaution or as a result it's, of damage? Uh, what? As a as a precaution, we live near the sea, and it's really close. And from where I am at the house. I can actually um, see if there's a, a, a tsunami coming. I can actually see it. Yes, well, the government has said that there is no tsunami threat, hasn't it? Yeah, but yeah, everybody was a bit of a shock. I went down to the hospital. There was a report of accident, but not confirmed. So that's something that uh, probably we'll need to get the information from the hospital or the police. So when you say the hospital was evacuated, that includes all the patients. So they were out on the road, were they? That's right. They were actually on the road. Some uh, trying to get taxis and buses, and, and um, it was like everybody was fighting for their safety, really. The patients were left to their own devices out on the road, were they? Yes, that's right. Even those on wheelchairs were wheeled up to the, to the taxis, uh, taxi ranks and the buses are. Yeah. We have heard reports that there are cracks in Parliament buildings. Probably heard right, because this is quite a big one. I, I, I think it's seven on the richer scale, so it, it's quite a, a big one. Okay, well, at least uh, at this stage anyway, no one was hurt and not there hasn't been a tsunami. Not at the moment, no.
Our correspondent in Honiara, Georgina Kekea, says there was some anxiety on the streets from parents also rushing to schools to ensure their children were okay. I asked her what it was like when the earthquake struck. Mm. Thank you, Koroi. Well, uh, it was not expected as usual with natural hazards. Yeah, uh, quite a shock for us, quite a big one. I think after uh, a bit we checked and it was like 7.3. So I guess uh, it's quite uh, a big one for us in Honiara. Uh, yeah, uh, we still got uh, experienced power outage, uh, just a monitor screen of a computer that fell down on the desktop. But apart from that, we are all fine and just sitting through the um now. What was it like? Was it like um, could you could you stay on your feet, or did it was it strong enough to knock people off their feet? Uh, I guess luckily for us, I think we uh, in in a, in a lower building, so it's okay. But from what we've seen and heard from those that are uh, in Anthony Saru building, that's a different story altogether. But for us, it's still okay. Uh, quite dizzy, a bit dizzy, uh, even during the tremors. Yeah. Right, and Anthony Saru is the only six-story building in in town. Is that the one you're referring to? Yes, the highest building in Honiara in Solomon Island. Um, uh, on on social media, any posts around the place you're looking at? Other people posting? How are, what are you seeing in terms of uh, how people have been affected mm. so far? Mm. Uh, I guess probably just a shock. A few uh, I've seen pictures where some um, offices have their files and everything thrown all over the floor. But otherwise, I'm, I'm I'm still hoping to get more information and wanting to see more information, especially from uh, South Kurokanal, basically, uh, or probably uh, where the earthquake uh, was closest to. But otherwise, Internet's really bad at this time, too, so just couldn't get much, even if we want to browse and to see what's happening, because it's uh, really... Yeah, I think everyone's on the net as well, including, um, you know, with, with power outages and all that. It's really chaotic in Honiara, but hopefully things will subside as everyone um, settle down and, uh, yeah, get through the panic, which uh, was felt this uh, afternoon. Yeah. Uh, always quite a frightening experience, earthquakes. Uh, have you heard much from, like, women and children and that uh, are people quite shaken still? Uh, yep, I think parents are ones that were panicking uh, this afternoon. Um, I've heard that um, uh, it was chaotic along the main highway, especially parents trying to get to the kids. And uh, I've called uh, and checked for my youngest one. Uh, they are safe. They're okay. So uh, I guess that's the worry mostly for most parents, especially at this time. Thank you, Tomas Gina. I appreciate your time. And obviously, well, we'll check back um probably in the next hour and, and um, a bit later on as well for updates. Stay safe. Okay, thank you. The full extent of the damage caused by the quakes will not become clear until local disaster authorities complete their assessments, especially for remote communities in South Guadalcanal, whose coastline is facing the epicentre of the largest quake. By 2027, the autonomous Papua New Guinea region of Bougainville expects to be an independent state. This follows 2019's overwhelming referendum in Bougainville backing independence. Work has been underway with both governments consulting on the way forward, but last month Bougainville accused Port Moresby of dragging the chain. Anthony Regan from the Australian National University has spent many years working alongside the Bougainville government. He spoke with Don Wiseman, who asked him about these latest developments. First, 
start the post-referendum negotiation process, which is required because the the outcome of the referendum, although overwhelmingly in favour of independence, did not bind Papua New Guinea. Rather, the peace agreement of the constitution said the two sides had then to consult. The consultation didn't start for almost 18 months because of COVID and various other problems. It started in May last year. There's been three consultation meetings held so far. PNG has not yet stated a position officially on the Bougainville demand for recognition of independence so that it can be fully independent by 2027. They've indicated their uncertainty about the issues involved, particularly about the capacity of Bougainville for independence, the divisiveness of an independence process, but they've not said either yes or no. Probably in part that was because they didn't want to have a political stoush before the national elections that were held in uh, June, July. Since the elections, there seems to be a bit more of a walking away from anything like openness to independence. And I think that's got to do something with the fact the election is over. The Minister for Bougainville Affairs for the last two years until the election was the Prime Minister. He conducted the consultations on behalf of PNG. Since the election, the Prime Minister is no longer Minister. He's appointed a young lawyer from the Highlands to be the Minister. So I think the indications are that PNG is moving towards perhaps saying no. There has been intimation coming from uh, James Murape that the people of PNG, all the people of PNG should have a say, and that has very much riled the people on Bougainville. Is that just a red herring he's thrown in there, or is that likely to become something more significant? The reason for the Bougainvillians being upset about that is that, as far as they're concerned, the referendum was the only test of people's opinion that was required. That's what was agreed when the peace agreement was signed, and they're concerned that there's now a backing away from that. They're also concerned that it's intended to give the Prime Minister ammunition for saying no. He'll be able to say the people don't want Bougainville to be independent, so I can't support independence. So they see it as uh, an excuse to get away from the difficulty of dealing with the constitutional expression of Bougainville opinion in the referendum, 97.7% in favour of independence. If the PNG government is wavering, how does Bougainville turn that around? Bougainville's strategy is to keep spelling out to PNG that the populace that supported it independence almost unanimously are still supporting it. They're doing that through having established referendum committees in every constituency. It's 40 constituencies. They've done it by various public announcements. They've done it through establishing an independence constitutional planning commission, which started work in April and is tasked to produce the first draft of an independence constitution within the first half of next year. So they're endeavouring to signal to PNG that there's no real turning back. It becomes difficult for Bougainville if PNG does in fact say no, because it's very hard for any seceding entity to get their independence recognised by membership in the UN if the parent country 
opposes their recognition by the UN. And the Bougainvilleans are aware of that, and they're doing their best to put the pressure on PNG to recognise independence, because then their entry into the UN is more or less guaranteed. You would think that with all the, the myriad problems facing the PNG government uh, at the moment, having the Bougainville issue extended and and having to be fought over is about the last thing that they would want to add into the mix. Yes. On the other hand, no prime minister in PNG is going to want to be the one that goes down in history as the leader that allowed the part of the country to secede. So it's very difficult for the prime minister to agree. I think if there was a vote in cabinet or in parliament, there would be some certainly that would support Bougainville independence, but it's quite likely that the majority would be against. So politically, it's difficult for a prime minister to entertain independence for Bougainville. So one does have to have some sympathy for the position of the prime minister. It's a difficult issue for any independent country leader to deal with. Children in New Zealand and Fiji connected virtually over the weekend for fun events and activities to mark World Children's Day, which was on Sunday. First established in 1954 as Universal Children's Day, it's held every year on the 20th of November to celebrate children's rights, promote awareness among children and reaffirm commitments to improving children's welfare. The theme for this year was Inclusion for Every Child. Our guest today is from Save the Children New Zealand. Bula, and welcome on Pacific Waves. Jackie, I'll let you introduce yourself and your work. Bula Vanaka, and thank you for having me on your show. Um, My name is Jackie Salvi, and I lead child rights advocacy and research for Save the Children here in New Zealand. And it's a great opportunity for us to be able to chat with you and share our information about children's rights and World Children's Day. Awesome. And you had quite a colourful celebration over the weekend, um, international celebration in terms of linking uh, different children's groups and celebrating the day together. Tell us a bit more, maybe about the day to start and then the activities. So World Children's Day is a day to celebrate the signing of the Convention on the Rights of the Child. And so the official date is the 20th of November, but we got in a day early and celebrated on the 19th of November, uh, and that we also joined with Fiji, who had chosen the same day to celebrate World Children's Day. On this day, we raise awareness about children's rights, and we celebrate the importance of children's rights because they're part of everyday life. They're the essentials that we want our children to have, to live in a safe and loving home with their families, to be able to practice their language and their culture without discrimination, to be able to go to school, to have friends, to play to be able to have nutritious food or health care, all of the things that we want for our children. And we help uh, parents, whānau, adults that work for and with children to understand about children's rights along with children themselves. Now, the reason that your organisation and, and organisations like it exist is because these, although they are established rights and all of this, there is a big gap between what's on paper and reality, isn't there? Sadly, that's true. We would love to see every child have all of their rights met in all circumstances, and that would mean our work would be done, and that would be amazing. However, sadly, children around the world, including here in New Zealand, don't have their rights met. Some children fail to be able to access the health care they need when they need it. Uh, Others don't, on a regular basis, enjoy nutritious food, 
some too many of our children here in New Zealand live with violence and fear, and we have a terrible we have terrible rates of uh, violence against children. That's a, another issue that Save the Children speaks out strongly against. We uh, there are children who are excluded from school, and children with disabilities who are also excluded from many opportunities um, because they're not treated with because they're sorry they're discriminated against and not treated with the extra resources they need to be able to enjoy their rights like every other child. In terms of linking that work in Aotearoa to the Pacific, the situation out there in the region is similar, if not worse, is it not, than New Zealand's? Well, that's right. The Pacific share many of the same challenges that New Zealand faces. And in some places in the Pacific, it can be more dire because the resources are fewer and less. And Save the Children has been working in the Pacific, uh, in Fiji, since the 1970s in Solomon Islands since the 1980s. So we have a long history of working with our friends in the Pacific to do better for children. Some of the work we do in these countries is about uh, access to clean drinking water or supporting early learning. We work hand-in-hand with governments to try and ensure that whatever the work is that we do, that it's carried forward. So we don't want to come in and put a Band-Aid on and leave and then it all falls apart. We also work very closely with local people so that... Whatever we do is what local people want us to be doing. Um, again, we don't want to come in and impose that, this idea of we know best when actually it's the people who live in, in the communities that know exactly what they need and we work hand-in-hand hand to, to provide that, whether it's clean drinking water, sanitation or access to, to learning of some form. Now, as, as well as the importance of making the points we're making and, and the awareness of the day, the World Children's Day, also a celebration, and I understand you guys uh, did a lot of that on on the weekend. Yes, absolutely. Many of the issues that we work on are very serious issues, but children's rights are something to be celebrated. They're positive. They're something that uh, we want everyone to know about, including children. And by having a celebration, by having fun while we learn about them, we can show children's rights in action because essentially that's what we want for our children, to have bright childhoods where they have fun and they join in. And we work, this is a first for us, we work together with our friends in Fiji to have a live stream event where in real time we both joined in to a specially designed yoga show where children used yoga to travel around the world and uh, experience New Zealand, the Pacific, Southeast Asia, countries in Africa and South America, and all the while having a lot of fun and realising that these rights that we're learning about and celebrating are the same for children all over the world. Jackie, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it and all the best with the ongoing work. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on your show. Tonga's government plans on using the findings from the Tonga Volcano Expedition, a science collaboration, to inform long-term planning in the kingdom. The seafloor mapping around Hunga Tonga Hunga Hapai confirmed it is the biggest eruption in the last century. Niwa's chief scientist, Mike Williams, has described the event on January 15 as a shotgun blasting directly into the sky. He says more mapping is needed because an event like this could happen again. Head of the Tonga Geological Services Ministry of Lands and Natural Resources for the Government of the Kingdom of Tonga, Taniel Kula, has confirmed more collaborative projects like this sign the pipeline. He explained the findings will be used to make policy decisions and told Lydia Lewis what stood out to him in the report. The most significant one is the magnitude of the volcano. 
which is now being recorded as a within a DEI of six, which means it emitted a total volume of seven to ten cubic kilometers of uh, ash material into the atmosphere. And it's also the uh, highest eruption into the atmosphere up to 57, 58 kilometers, which is the highest in the world at the moment. This demonstrates the, the power and the potential of uh, volcanic eruption in our region. This means this raises questions about the safety of the public, which requires uh, long-term planning and um, hazard assessment to ensure our development incorporates all the potential hazards from future volcanic eruption. So this is the result that was out th that stood out out of the of the research uh, the most because it demonstrates the need for hazard mapping from volcanic eruption and also the need for better spatial planning to counter and reduce the risk from volcanic eruptions in the future. Uh, secondly, is the understanding of the marine life in the, in the area. We were able to determine that the recovery rate is uh, quite good. We noticed that the, only those areas where the ash from the pyroclastic flow uh, covered was affected by the, by the eruption. Uh, those areas where the pyroclastic flow under, under the water did not cover, uh, the marine life in those areas survived and they continue to, to flourish in, in, in their um, respective areas. Also, we were able to identify well, the risk for the underwater cables, uh, the fiber optic cables that we use for the connection to the, to the rest of the world for our internet. Uh, we understand the damages now. We also learned the new behavior of the pyroclastic flow at, um, in the deep ocean. Uh, it does not restrict itself to valleys, but then it flows where the energy flows, and, and that's an uh, ongoing study to understand this new behavior of pyroclastic flow uh, flowing towards the valley and then back up again into the ridges in the sea floor, uh, which damage uh, the, uh, the internet cables, the fiber optic cables, in a manner that was not understandable. Uh, but continuous studies will improve our understanding of how the damages came about um, from the pyroclastic flow. I guess these are the main uh, findings that stood out to myself personally and how we can, from our ministry, uh, Ministry of Land and Natural Resources, and uh, how we can use our authority to better plan our, our land use space and to cater for these, uh, for the, for these uh, magnitudes of uh, hazard generated by volcanic eruption. What planning is underway or in the pipeline to better prepare following the release of this information? Given this is just a recent release, we have yet to present these new findings to the government as a whole. 
for consideration. But um, Kermit is currently undertaking the recovery. They are relocating uh, residents from hazards area, inundated and affected by the tsunami into higher grounds. So these are the, the approaches that the government is now undertaking. Uh, but regarding the new findings uh, of this, this new finding, this will be incorporated into our long-term plan. So we're looking into developing uh, special management plans, incorporating disaster and not just the tsunami, but also uh, other disaster where Tonga is prone to, like tropical cyclones. Incorporate those into a spatial plans of those individual islands that was uh, affected. Is better instrumentation or more in instrumentation needed around Tonga? Yes. So we have uh, managed to collaborate with the USGS, US Geological Survey, and they have uh, financed, uh, they have granted us infrasound. These equipment can detect uh, any eruption uh, from any location within our water. So these instruments, we're likely to install them in the next uh, year. One of the researchers is keen to come back and do more seabed mapping to help build a, a bigger picture of what's happened. Is that something that you have requested? What is the next step for those researchers and what, what do you need most from them next? It's uh, interest of the government and something that I have spoke about in our informal meetings with NIWA, that understanding the risk from volcanic eruption submarine volcano eruptions, we need to study the rest of the volcano, uh, submarine volcanoes in the Tonga water. There are likely over 50 submarine volcanoes in different sizes, so we will have to prioritize choosing from the largest submarine volcanoes and go from there. And obviously, Honofo is the next one. And we're grateful that NIWA has uh, supported this this uh, wish or this desire for Tonga to understand the submarine volcanoes in our water. And NIWA has a scientific capability. And we're grateful that they allow their time to collaborate with us in undertaking this expedition. That's Pacific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us for free to your device from Spotify, iHeart, or Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Thank you, Tomas, and you can be next time more.